because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Hey everyone, this is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour. And on this election week, we're going to do a best of Power Hour. And the best of Power Hour I'm picking is the episode we did earlier this year. It's the most popular episode this year on Michael Schellenberger's book, Apocalypse Never. Now, why am I picking out this episode for this particular week? Not just because it was a great episode, not just because it was popular, but because I think it's very a very crucial example of a positive that is very much needed in the energy debate right now, uh, especially in light of what's happening with the elections. And I would put this as there needs to be a pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human movement in energy. And I want to talk about this just very briefly before we get to the, you know, the best of episode in the context of the debates between Trump and Biden and how those went and how the election went. As I'm recording this, it seems like Biden is the victor. There's a lot of challenges about fraud. It's very hard to see what basis there is uh, to those. So, I mean, who knows? This could all become very dated. But what I'm going to focus on, I don't think will be dated no matter who wins, which is that if you look at how the debates went over fossil fuels and how this relative support for the different candidates went, I think there's very promising evidence that a pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human support of fossil fuels would win a big following. So if you look at President Trump's uh, support, notice that toward the end of the election, he made energy an issue, particularly Biden's talking about transitioning away from the oil industry, the whole issue of fracking. Biden felt the need to run away from that. Kamala Harris felt the need to say, like, Joe Biden will not ban fracking. That is a fact. And you saw this whole you know, retreat away from being anti-fossil fuels. And you saw, saw some significant pro-fossil fuel uh, sentiment among Republicans, including on the episode recently I did with Sean Steffi of the Boilermakers. You can see that was someone who's very enthusiastic and who had decided to support the Republicans on pro-fossil fuel grounds. So it was really interesting to see. And I think probably my work has influenced this. I'm almost certain it has to some extent a certain confidence in advocating fossil fuels as a good thing. I think that's something you didn't see certainly eight years ago when uh, President Obama was uh, elected or when he was elected the second time, you know, or even 12 years ago when he was elected the, the first time. So there's a promising thing there. But then if you look at who's opposing the, uh, the president in terms of re-election. Now, I, I know a lot of people who support him and a lot of people who oppose him. And what's interesting is most of the people I talk to that oppose him, and this I don't have a fully representative sample, obviously, but their issue is that he comes across as anti-reality and anti-science. And there's a, there's a very real basis for that, that concern. And so there's this feeling of, he says things and he doesn't always care if they correspond to reality. And when, when the issue of science comes up, he can be dismissive. Now you can have sympathy for the dismissive of certain things 
that, that are called scientific because what we have is we have on the side of science, unfortunately, there are many people who manipulate and abuse science for political ends. So for example, they take the what I believe is a scientific truth that rising CO2 levels have some warming impact on climate. And then they turn it into this idea of a climate catastrophe that we can't manage. And that means getting rid of fossil fuels and it means replacing them specifically with unreliable solar and wind. And that's just a complete butchering of science. It doesn't follow from the actual science at all. But if you come across as I don't care about the science, I'm in some way denying the science, you're gonna alienate people who value science as an aspect, and they value science as an aspect of valuing reality. So I think it's just incredibly damaging the extent to which the pro-energy, pro-fossil fuel side is viewed in any way as anti-science or uh, anti-reality. And what I found in my own experience is that by being pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human, I'm able to win over a lot of people who would certainly not vote for Donald Trump but they would be sympathetic to these pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human arguments for fossil fuels. So if you combine those people with the people who are voting for President Trump in part because of fossil fuels and the recognition that in reality, fossil fuels are indispensable to American flourishing and to human flourishing more broadly for the foreseeable future. If you combine those factions, not factions, but those, those groups of people or those buckets of people, that's a really promising audience. And if, if, if Biden becomes President Biden, that group will be very much needed because we have just huge, I mean, we're just going to have huge opposition from the House in terms of, uh, now the House is less Democrat now than it was before, but it looks like it's certainly going to be a Democrat majority. And then with the Democrat president who's saying that climate change is the top issue and with a very small Republican majority, if any, it's not even decided at this point in the Senate, there's going to be a lot of move toward very disastrous policies. And what we need to win those battles and perhaps even to proactively put over, to put across, put forward the uh, pro-freedom energy policies, including pro-fossil fuel policies, is to be seen as very pro-human, very pro-science, very pro-reality, and in no way to be seen as we don't care about reality, we don't care about science. I think no matter what happens in this election, that kind of positive movement is very much needed. And just one, one place this came up in the debates was with the issue of climate or climate change. When the president was asked about it, it was that he gave kind of this, that like, do you believe in climate change or do you believe it's an existential threat or some, some variety of that? What's your view on this? And he would often just go immediately to, I believe in really clean air and really clean water and not address it directly. And I think when so many people see that, particularly they've been taught to think this is a serious problem, not just a challenge, but a serious problem, that comes across as anti-reality and anti-science. And so that is definitely not what we want to be. So whoever is president, we need to be pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human. And that leads us to this interview with Michael Schellenberger, uh, whom I think is one of the outstanding exponents of being pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human. Now, I am not so privately agitating Schellenberger 
to run for governor again. He ran a couple of years ago and lost, but he wasn't very well known. Governor of California, I should say. We so need a new governor here. I think Schellenberger would be great. Uh, I So I want to do anything I can to raise his profile and to promote, to promote him. But really the reason I'm, I'm sharing this episode this week is I think he epitomizes what uh, what a rational energy movement needs to be. And again, keep saying, but I just want to keep emphasizing pro-reality, pro-science, pro-human. All right. That is my intro for this week. I will be back next week. I have a really interesting guest, actually somebody who is uh, from India and has experienced energy poverty and actual poverty firsthand. So I'm really excited to bring that episode to you. Uh, but until then, enjoy this episode with Michael Schellenberger. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Well, last week I reviewed this book on the show, Apocalypse Never, and this week I have on the author. So without further ado, welcome to Power Hour, Michael Schellenberger. Thanks for having me, Alex. Fun to be here. Good to have you. Lots to talk about. Yeah, man. And you're, you're the man of the hour right now. I believe I, last time I saw the book got to number seven on Amazon. Is that right? No, we got to number five yesterday. You got to number five on Amazon. Yeah. That's, that's unbelievable. Um, so unbelievable. just, just so that people uh, know who haven't been, who, who didn't, haven't followed the podcast yet, can you just give us a quick overview of the book? Sure. So this is um, a book I've been working on for a really long time. It's in some ways, it's the bookend to Death of Environmentalism, which I wrote 15 years ago. And the book is really comprised of three things. Uh, First part is a debunking of of common environmental myths on everything from climate change to deforestation to plastics to species extinctions. The second part is on how humans save nature, how we actually save nature in the real world, as opposed to our fantasies about it. And then the third part of the book is why, if environmental problems are real and serious, but not the end of the world, we came to view them as apocalyptic. Great. Well, I just, I wrote down a list of some of the claims you make in the book. And so let's see, where are these? Um, Well, so you have things like, you know, you talk about um, like, we're not going through a, a sixth extinction. Like the world already grows even more than enough food. And even as it gets hotter, we'll be able to grow more food. You know, places like the Netherlands thrive even below sea level. And so what I want to ask you first is, I mean, from what people get from the book and from what I know of your history, like this is probably the last thing that you were expecting to be writing 30 years ago. Is that right? Like if someone had told you 30 years ago, you'd be writing <laughs> this book? Day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've been an environmentalist for 33 years. Um, you know, I dated back to when I threw a, you know, a fundraiser for Rainforest Action Network on my 16th birthday. And I've been an environmentalist ever since. Um, but yeah, I mean, really, you know, I've written about, I've written a more moderate view. I've written my more moderate view on climate change. I did write about that more like five or 10 years ago. And then it just didn't feel like it was having any, it didn't really feel like it mattered. And so last year when all the crazy, last year was like just uniquely crazy on climate change. And people were saying things like billions of people are going to die and, 
and the earth is dying and I just got fed up with it. And I was like, I just got to write something that is not a polemic and is not a manifesto, but is actually a really evidence-based takedown of the myths. Um, so that's kind of what motivated me to do it. So I want to go a little bit uh, back in history. I think your, your development is, is really, really uh, interesting. So, I mean, one, and, and I don't, you know, we've only met in person once and we, I've had you once on the podcast. So, I, and I've read well, probably almost all of your modern stuff. So I know as much as that, but I mean, there's at least, you know, I see at least three major points in your development, although there are probably more because I mean, one is definitely you were, I mean, you know, I, maybe four, because you talk about you were kind of a pretty, I don't know, hardcore environmentalist, but you were at least, you know, organizing parties for the Rainforest Action Network when you were 16. That's a funny story. Right. But you definitely have like a clear moments in time where you're a renewables activist in right. terms of at right. least helping raise. And then there's this transition from being renewables activist to being this huge champion of nuclear. And then there's this other, I, I don't think of it as a, I don't know if it's a private change, but I know it's a public change in terms of your challenging what you're calling climate alarmism. But first, I want to start out with the the renewables to nuclear. How did that uh, happen? Yeah, so, um, you know, I mean, I first, I think the first big shift was sort of just saying, look, we'll solve climate change with, with technological change, you know, with the energy transition. Like, it's not going to be by everybody becoming poorer. That's not how it's going to happen. We're going to deal with climate change by, by, by just switching to power sources that don't have, that don't produce carbon emissions. So that was like the first big thing. And then it was like, once I was on board with that, it wasn't as, as hard to be like, okay, maybe you do need nuclear. And then it was just becoming disenchanted with renewables. It was really the land use impacts and the environmental impacts of renewables. So, you know, you're listening, you and your listeners know, I don't need to tell you guys, but, you know, 400 times more land on average for solar and wind farms uh, than you need for natural gas or nuclear plants. Of course, it's completely unreliable. Um, by the way, did you see you got yourself a little section? You got your, I, I gave you a little section uh, head, headline. Uh, unreliable. One? Unreliable. Oh, yeah, I'm glad. I credit I'm you. I don't know if you wrote that, but I... I, I did, but I didn't know that you credited me. Where did you credit well, me? I didn't credit you. I just stole it from you. Oh, <laughs> just, I'm crediting you now. Um, no, I was just saying, I mean, I was unreliable. I know, I loved, you know? I, I was so happy when I saw that because I've, I've wanted that to get wider use. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, so it was all that. And then Stuart Brand in 2009 came out and said, we got to have nuclear. He gave a great TED talk on sort of cities and nuclear and GMOs. I was convinced. I mean, honestly, I didn't take, I had to do one more thing, which was to read the World Health Organization reports on Chernobyl. And then you read those and you just go, oh, this is not what I thought, you know, just mm. far fewer deaths. And in fact, I go through in my book, there's even fewer deaths than I thought from reading the World Health Organization reports. So that, and then it was really a process of just getting kind of myself set up and, you know, my donors were all pro-renewables all my friends. So it's a very awkward um, period of time where we kind of were like, yeah, nuclear and renewables together, but it never made any sense to me. I mean, once you have nuclear, you're kind of like, well, why would you want to go add all this garbage energy to your grid? It doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you, I mean, people are like, we have to have a mix. Why? Like, there's no technical reason that you would need and when we looked at France, France 75% nuclear, when they start to reduce the amount of electricity from nuclear, 
to add renewables to appease the sun and wind gods, then they have to integrate more natural gas and the carbon intensity of their electricity goes up. So not only do you not need renewables, it actually is worse for the environment, not just land use, but also carbon emissions, if you care about that. So that was the big thing. And then it's been the hard. I've basically had two separate two separate losses of friends and donors. You know, one was on first just embracing nuclear and the second has just been being like, we don't need renewables and why are we lying about this anyway? I mean, like, it's just, it's basically the left. Basically what it is is that, you know, there's pro-nuclear progressives who want to maintain the coalition with the radical left that's anti-nuclear and pro-renewables. And so they think, I think they have a case of battered wife syndrome, you know, so they go, oh, well, we have to be for renewables, even though they all know better that we don't need renewables. And they know perfectly well that renewables are what we use in pre-industrial civilization, that renewables cannot power an industrial civilization, that their power densities are too low. You know, they know about Voslav Smil, they know about Jesse Osobel. As you know, Jesse Osobel is a character in the book, Voslav is more in the footnotes, but they know all this, and then there's just this kind of, oh, but we, for political reasons, we have to be pro-renewables. Pro and then renewables are just much more popular than nuclear. And so there's these people that, that think, well, if we kind of hide nuclear in renewables, then the left will be on board. But as I point out in this book, that's just a complete misunderstanding of what's going on. That's not, the left doesn't want renewables because it's trying to deal with climate change. It wants renewables as a way to harmonize human society into nature as a religious project. First and foremost, it's a religious project to move towards a low energy society and appease the sun and, and wind gods. It's not about climate change, right? That's kind of the big, I'm probably spoiling the book for people, but that's kind of the big. Yeah, <laughs> I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that. So okay. the, the um, so, one thing that's interesting about just the form of your explanation here is basically you're saying, like, I was concerned about something, I studied the facts, and the facts were fairly straightforward. And I think certainly if you're concerned, I mean, just if you take the issue of CO2 emissions, if you're concerned about CO2 emissions, there's exactly one scalable, reliable way of doing that. That I mean, that we have evidence that actually works. And so if you, you thought of it as, as urgent, or an alarm, I mean, obviously you would focus on that. And so I've, I've just drawn a huge line among what I would call the climate catastrophists between those who are pro-nuclear and those who are anti-nuclear. And it's right. been, and it's just, so what do you think? I mean, One group is the bullshitters <laughs> and the other people are at least honest about what you but, do. But the, the, the anti, yeah, the, I mean, the pro-nuclear is so small that's part of what's interesting yeah. about it. I mean, you know, like Hansen and Emmanuel put out that letter several years ago about nuclear. They just got torn up by all the environmental yeah. organizations. So um, what is it about, like you just seem to be moved by facts. Why is it that particularly just these facts, we can talk about climate in a minute, but just the facts about renewables versus nuclear, why is it that the whole environmental movement won't see these facts? Yeah, so the last three chapters, I go through the reasons why apocalyptic environmentalists who you would expect to be the most pro-nuclear are the most anti-nuclear people. And I basically look at three different factors, money, power, and religion. And so we can do each of them, but basically you get to the religion part 
And my view is that the money and the power are almost more in service of the religion rather than the other way around. Um, in other words, people are always like on Twitter, you know, they kind of go, are they faking it? Is it a conspiracy, you know, to make money and whatever? And it's like, no, it's sort of worse than that. It's that these people are in the grip of bad religion and they have no idea. They think that they're atheists. They think they're secular. They think they don't have a God. Um, and in fact, it's not, you know, I'm very careful in this book, like it's a, I mean, it's a careful, it's a cold take. It's a very cold take. <laughs> it's the opposite of Twitter, right? So you spend a lot of time on this, I spent a lot of time on this book and a lot of the, the sources are just right. So I source this claim that environmentalism is a religion, that it's mostly, that its adherents are people who think they're atheists. This is all in the scholarly research literature. Um, and then where it kind of comes to is that it turns out that really um, there's good evidence that we all need to believe that some part of our lives will live on after we die. This is this amazing work uh, on the denial of death. And the idea is that we, as humans, unlike other animals, we're aware that we die from a very young age, you know, four or five-year-old kids, they figure it out. But it's so terrifying, the idea of dying as it should be, if it weren't, then we wouldn't you know, thrive, um, that we have to push it into our unconscious and then we construct a story of ourselves and our lives as having some cosmic significance. And for most people, you know, a lot of people is just having grandkids. You know, my grandkids are gonna carry on and be like me in some way, or you might write a book or you might try to save the world or whatever, but there's a, there's a heroism that's actually part of just being a healthy, some faith and some belief and some heroism. That's all kind of part of just being a healthy person. But that if you're blind to it, if you don't think that's what you're doing, you know, if you're just like, no, I'm just, I'm just saving the planet. Gosh, it has nothing to do with me needing to feel like my life is significant or I need to have some belief. Then it leads you into some really dark and disturbing places. And so I argue that that this that this that people are in the grip of something i mean it was funny because obviously it's not just on the environment right now right i mean i was listening to john mcwarder who's like my favorite thinker on race issues and mm -hmm. he's like i'm gonna write a, my next book's gonna be about anti-racism as religion and i was like i just oh, wrote wow. that i just wrote about that as all about the environment and i emailed him because i know him i've known him for like 15 years and i was like john i've just done this on the environment and he's like yeah yeah it's the same thing <laughs> it's like secular people constructing a religion to give their lives great significance and meaning and to construct themselves as heroes. And, and you know, I, to some extent, like I go, it's kind of natural, like we all have an, that need, but it's when you're so blind to, to your own, you know, your own psychological needs, so to speak, that it leads people to behaving in really bad ways. So that's, that's the, so, I mean, I, I'm, you know, my background's philosophy, so I'm very inclined to the view that the religious slash philosophical is fundamental. Usually people think of it as the desire for power or the desire for money, but I think of it more as like the religion sets the values and it, it determines who gets status and then power and money like follow that. But there's a question of why is it going that way in the first place? You got it. Yeah. I'm in a hundred percent agreement with you. I think that's exactly how it works. Um, and, you know, it's a problem. I mean, you know, this is, of course, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche predicts this. He says, everybody says they're Christian, but they're certainly not acting as though they're going to be judged after death because <laughs> they're sinning so much. 
you know, so I'm Christian, but I keep sinning. So you don't really, if you're doing that, you don't really believe in God. And Nietzsche said, this is all going to fall apart. Science has just been too devastating to Judeo-Christianity, came out of Judeo-Christianity, now it's devastating to it. And he said, we're going to have, the world's going to just be, it was like apocalyptic. Nietzsche was like, it's all going to just fall apart. And within, you know, whatever, 20 years after his death, we have World War One, and then we have the rise of fascism, and then we have the rise of communism. And you get these big religions as supposedly secular religions, as ideologies. And then you get into, by the time you get to World War II, there's this brief hope, you know, that everyone's like, well, maybe we got beyond all that crazy totalitarian stuff and we can all just be liberal. But, but, but over time, you know, you see immediately socialism transforms itself into environmentalism by, by in an unholy marriage with Malthusianism. And, and then you get modern day environmentalism and it's only gotten more extreme and crazy over the last several decades. I mean, it was pretty darn crazy to begin with. But that movement overthrows this really humanistic conservation movement, you know, which was like, yeah, we should have wealth and prosperity and flourishing to use your lovely word. And, and we should also have mountain gorillas and yellow eyed penguins and, and whooping cranes and, and amazing species. And, and, that, and we don't, it's not because if we don't have whooping cranes, human civilization collapses. That's obviously bullshit. But that's what conserv that's what the Malthusian environmentalists have been right. saying. There's not even a mechanism there. You know, it's like, well, we have to save endangered species because if not, then like what? The roads are gonna like the roads and the electrical grids and the sewage systems are gonna like like what's the mechanism there exactly? So when to get beyond that and go, let's get back to what was a beautiful thing, which was this idea that you know, and there is a little bit of a, of a Judeo-Christian view, which is kind of let that be on to Caesar, which is Caesar's. Let there be an economy, you know, let there be economic growth, but also let's conserve the natural environment. As it turns out, as you progress, as you move from wood to coal to petroleum to natural gas to uranium, you're reducing humankind's footprint. As you're growing more food on less land, as you're concentrating food production, you're able to allow nature to return in the form of grasslands and forests and wild animals. So, I mean, that's kind of the picture of it. I do think, I do recognize that what I am proposing is in some way a different theology. I think it's more compatible with modern science. I think it's more compatible with what we might call liberal values, which are um, you know, universal equal opportunity, prosperity, all the things we care about. Um, to, I wanna talk on one aspect, talk about one aspect of the religion that you just raised at least um, implicitly, because you, you said, and I laughed at it about like, you, there's no mechanism by which the death of the whooping crane would right. prevent us from uh, surviving. One, one of my favorite parts of the book is in, it might even be in the last uh, chapter where you, you challenge the equilibrium view of like nature as a system in equilibrium. And then you, right. you give what I think is a very helpful explanation of more of nature as a mixture. So could you, right. you talk about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, um, so this idea, you know, I used to have it, you know, that nature is a kind of holistic system that's kind of bound together like a Jenga puzzle, you know, and if you pull too many Jenga parts out, then it collapses. But that's, you know, there are some situations where you can have rapid ecological change. I mean, the most famous, you know, ones are um, you know, like nitrogen pollution in the waterway, and you get a big algae bloom, or you can 
You can clear cut a forest and it's very rapid ecological change. But for the most part, you know, it's species come and go, you know. Um, I mean, obviously the, you know, the animal species that come in, they have to be getting something from that habitat, um, you know, usually food uh, or place to, to place to live or procreate. But there's not like some, you know, but the idea that you would, that there would be one is a Neoplatonic view. It's, you know, the view that everything has its role in this universe, um, even without God, that it's all kind of put together in just this right way. And we should all feel very worried that if we do something, if we trespass, you know, now we're back into the Judeo-Christian, you know, you trespass against it, you impurify it, then it will sort of collapse. It's just, it's ridiculous, you know, and there's just been all this ecological science showing that that's not how in most environments work. And so they, but then after World War II, they kind of mathematized it and they used the, the, the model was the, um, I don't remember the name. Yeah, the equilibrium model was like the thermostat, you know, that like, like you can have perturbations and there will be some room, but if you go too many perturbations and disruptions, the whole system collapses. So, you know, I just kind of point out that, um, you know, and it's funny because of course, like, that's the argument, conservationists, Malthusian conservationists at some point decided that just showing people pictures of whales and gorillas and penguins and saying, look, let's save that, that somehow they decided that wasn't enough and they needed to kind of construct this apocalyptic narrative. And of course, it's tied up with this book of Genesis part, you know, it's the two ends of the Bible, that nature all exists in this kind of state of harmony. My point was always, because I've been an environmental activist, and I know that what works best is you show people the picture of the of the redwood forest. Even better is you take people to see mountain gorillas. If you see mountain gorillas, you are after that a mountain gorilla activist. It doesn't matter. You can you would have to be like made of stone to be with mountain gorillas in the wild. It's one of the peak spiritual experiences of my life, most people's lives. If you go there, you will fight like crazy to save mountain gorillas. That's why they're in the book. Right, it's like it's like everybody's favorite wildlife experience. You don't need to tell people that the world's going to end if they make the mountain gorillas extinct. That's just bizarre. Just show them pictures of the mountain gorillas. Everybody wants to save mountain gorillas. I think they worry. They go, well, but nobody wants to save the insects or whatever. But even there, you usually find a better way to save places. So anyway, that's where that that's where that comes from. I probably said too much already. No, no, that's that's really interesting. So I, we talked about you know your your transition to being a nuclear uh, advocate, and that's you know I came to know you and become a fan of yours a because you were very passionate about nuclear and telling the truth about that, and then b you had these unusually rational views in terms of environmental philosophy. You know you had love your monsters and the eco modernist manifesto, and within that it was clear reading between the lines, sometimes reading the lines, that you weren't a climate catastrophist. That is, you didn't think that, you yourself didn't think the world uh, was going to, you know, end because of rising CO2 levels, even if you thought it would be better not for them to rise as fast as they are, whatever your, your view was. But, you know, you had this article the other day, and I, what was, the title was something like, on behalf of environmentalists, yeah. I apologize for the climate yeah. scare, which is, yeah. man, talk about a title. I mean, that Highly thing, triggering, it turned out. Oh, yeah. my God. So I want to talk about the reaction to that in a minute, but I just want to talk about, like, what, I'm curious, your trajectory of, A, your thinking about the issue, but then also your decision to talk 
publicly about it because I was thrilled last year when you started writing these Forbes articles challenging climate catastrophe. I was like, oh, this is great. He's like, this is this would be so good if there were more pro, you know, what you would call environmental humanists who believe CO2 as a warming influence, but are saying this isn't a catastrophic thing and can put it in context. But almost no one has the I know that most, a lot of people believe that of the nuclear advocates, because I've talked to them, but most of them say like, oh, you Alex can say that, but I can't say that. So like what, what changed your thinking and then what changed your action? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a, you know, in a um, nutshell, it was that last year just got too crazy. I mean, it just got crazy. Uh, Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, the things, I mean, they were, the things that they were saying, the things that scientists were saying, it got too crazy. I was working on a book about nuclear already. Um, nobody wanted it. You know, I still, I loved this thing I was working on, but nobody wanted it. And finally, one of the editors was like, do you want to do a book on the environment? And I was kind of like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do want to do a book about the environment. And, you know, my daughter's 14. She's fine because... I talked to her about what the science actually says, but you know, I interviewed her friends uh, over Zoom recently and they're all terrified. Of course they are. One out of five British children have nightmares about climate change, you know, of course, you know, and I, you know, um, I may be, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but you know, when I was a kid in the late eighties, they had this terrifying movie about nuclear war called The Day After. I had nightmares about that. And I just remember being like, do we really, have to like terrorize each new generation of children about apocalypse. Is that really necessary? You know, um, and you know, it all goes back to nuclear actually. I mean, the, nucle the, the invention of nuclear was just such a radical revolutionary event. I mean, it's still gonna be 10,000 years from now, if we're still on earth and if we're still humans or whatever, we're still gonna look back at the invention of nuclear as a radical revolutionary act. You know, I always kind of go, we're not getting I mean, maybe we'll get fusion, but fusion's, different, fusion's advantages over nuclear fission are nothing compared to fissions over fossil fuel. And, and until the aliens give us, you know, the anti-gravity engines, you know, or the Pentagon releases them or something, um, like nuclear is like it, right? It's like the big next energy. So, so it's this huge event and it had this radical impact on the international relations, because of course, everybody figures out right away, it's like, well, shit, if one of these little countries that we can normally just invade gets one of those bombs, that changes everything. Like big countries don't dominate little countries in the same way they did anymore. And so the really forward thinking guys knew that nuclear weapons would in some, in, in some way end war. I mean, it sounds now, it still sounds crazy that nuclear weapons are a technical fix to war, but of course that's what that's what it is. I mean, that's what's going on, right? So you see Pakistan and India, they pretend to have a war just to satisfy their bloodthirsty citizenries. And now China and India had a war. You might've missed it because it took like, it was like whatever, 72 hours and it was some dudes on both sides killing each other, but both sides knew that there was never gonna be an escalation because the stakes are just too ridiculously high. It was not gonna, so, so nuclear is this traumatic event. And, and then it kind of, I just, I couldn't quite ever, you know, it's almost like it echoes then through climate. So climate change, if you listen to how people talk about it, like the apocalyptic stuff, it sounds almost identical to 
fears of nuclear weapons and nuclear wars. It's like the same, nuclear is kind of the prototypical apocalypse. And then they'd kind of be like, well, yeah, overpopulation, you know, that'll be like a bomb going off. Yeah. Like what, really? I mean, not really, right? Like not at all, um, but whatever. It would be like population bomb. That was the name of the big Malthusian population scare in 1968 and now climate change. And even I point out the Amazon has talked about like a bomb going off. So the bomb became kind of the ultimate symbol of humankind's apocalyptic power. And then, and then you can see that it becomes the devil and then you're trying to get away from it. And you're going to the angels, which just starts renewables. I mean, the overall cosmology of apocalyptic environmentalism is kind of so basic and dumb. It's almost embarrassing to when you describe it, you know, you're kind of like, God, I can't believe people really believe this, but that is what's going on. It's ultimately this idea that with renewables, we're going to harmonize ourselves with the new God of nature. Um, and they keep destroying the environment in order to save it while doing that. Yeah. It's, it's, I love, I love hearing all of, all of this stuff. And it's, you know, I love that you're, you know, you're challenging climate catastrophism among other things, you know, one really interesting feature of the book is that, and of your new article as well, as you talk about how the claims that you're making that sound radical and like they might be from so-called climate change deniers, that right. you're actually getting those from, you know, leading researchers connected to things like the UN, IPCC, yeah. uh, et cetera. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about how it is that what I would call our knowledge system, so the institutions like the New York Times that are supposed, and even the, I would say the PR, or the spokesman of the UN, how they, their job is to give us the best specialized knowledge on different topics, but how they wildly uh, distort it so that we're, so that 50% of people can think humanity is going to go extinct if CO2 right. level rises continue. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so there's three big groups of people that are responsible for the alarmism. It's the Malthusian scientists, it's the apocalyptic activists who are also Malthusian, and then it's the journalists who are really activist journalists. They're environmental activists working as journalists to spread the propaganda. So those are the three groups. I identify the key people in each of the groups. Some of them I interviewed and was able to debunk on the phone. That was one of the most yeah, that, that is awesome. I love that in your writing yeah. when you share yeah. those stories. Yeah, I just go, well, you know, you call them up, you know, and go, did you really mean? And what was telling about it is that for the four guys who were the most apocalyptic, their first instinct when I was on the phone with them was to blame the journalists who quoted them. They all claimed they were misquoted. And in one of the cases, it was like, he said, no, no, I didn't say that only a half a billion people could survive at four degree temperature increase over pre-industrial levels. I said only half the human population. It was like, okay, so you're saying that like, like only three and a half billion people will die instead of six billion people or seven billion people. Yeah. You know, oh yeah. I mean, well, I mean but I, I, I took a different, so I, I, that, that struck me, but it's, I mean, it struck me in that way too, but it's also struck me in, wait a second, you were quoted as saying that, what is it, uh, like 15 out of 16 people on earth uh, are going to die? And you didn't feel it necessary to correct that? Like, this wasn't a big deal that the Guardian said this? This wasn't a scandal? Oh, like and then this? he told me he hadn't seen it. Oh, come on. Everybody reads their press clippings. But I mean, I let's just grow the, up. It's the religion of it that they, it's just all in the right direction. Like, as long yeah. as we're creating scares and telling people to stop doing stuff, 
it's all it's all we're all good with the climate gods yeah you got it you actually just got it really well and in fact i i I think that's a great way of putting it that's the justification of it in fact i got it from reporters you know when i started criticizing them last year you know i did that in part because i knew the book was coming out and i wanted to get this stuff on the record so Mm. to just be like go ahead if it's wrong go ahead and ask for a correction well they didn't not a single person not a single scientist so obviously i got it right um um, but then one of the reports, so then it made some, you know, it got some attention and I was interviewed by a BBC reporter and the BBC reporter goes, now, Michael, you know, what would you say to those who go, come on, we got to exaggerate a little bit to get the public's attention, you know? And I was like, you're a reporter. <laughs> like maybe the Greenpeace comms guy would say that to me. You know, I mean, here we are. I mean, I still, I, I'm still thinking about it, Alex, but it's kind of like, when you read George Orwell, 1984, when you read Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, it's always the government. I mean, the libertarians are sensitive to this, right? The government is the one that's censoring. What's happening now? It's the journalists demanding the censorship. I mean, it's the craziest thing in the world. Like you kind of go, look, the journalists are demanding less freedom of speech, out there policing speech. You know, you've got so-called civil rights advocates advocating less police in, in African-American neighborhoods, do the African-Americans in those neighborhoods want less police? I mean, actually we ended up adding more police in the 90s because of demands from the Black Caucus, African-Americans. And on the environment, the people that say they're defending the environment are doing the worst things to the environment. These terrible industrial wind farms, you know, all the wildlife destruction. So I do think that I am, I'm optimistic today and maybe it's because the book is, is selling. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me when the book is not selling. Um, but I do kind of go, it is inevitable that this rotted, hollow, you know, Berlin wall of environmental lies will be kicked over or kicked in, or I don't know what the right metaphor is. But like at a certain moment, the guys guarding the Berlin wall are going to be like, yeah, it's bullshit. Like, I don't, I'm sorry, can we swear your show? Yes. I mean, I yes. kind of go, point like these guys just at some point I mean that's why I want to do the book which was like it's not a polemic you know it's thick and it just goes it goes okay show me how it's wrong go ahead like have at it and all the website you know we just uploaded all of our graphs and stuff to the website I believe that social media is so disruptive and you can see like all the mainstream media they don't want to talk about the issues I'm raising oh god you know and it's like it's like social media though, it allows you to kind of go right up to the reporter and go, hey, you know, did you think it wasn't worth mentioning that deaths from natural disasters have declined 90% over the last hundred years or they've declined 80% over the last 40 years in your article about floods? I mean, the New York Times just did this piece on flooding that suggests that sort of what, a, a few more inches of rainfall is gonna determine whether places flood? What will determine whether places flood is whether they have adequate flood control systems, full stop. Like that's the difference between Berkeley and the Congo. I'm on a hill in Berkeley, super steep. Every time it rains, the water just, just comes. It would, it would drain, it would flow into my house, except for we have this amazing flood control system. That's what determines whether there's floods or not. But the, what, what is powerful about social media and I think the book and all we're doing together is kind of go, this is wrong and you need to stop doing this now. And I do think, I don't know if it's gonna be you know, it's probably not gonna be in a month, but I don't think it's gonna be like 10 years. I would say give us one or two years. And I do think we're gonna be able to drum a bunch of this really bad environmental alarmism out of the public discourse. 
And I think one reason why you'll be successful is, you know, you really focus on offering a positive alternative. You know, you talk at the end about environmental humanism and nature and, and prosperity for all. And part of what you're doing is you're, you're owning all the values that the modern environmental movement claims to care about, but actually doesn't care about. And, and as evidence, they don't care about it. If you just take the issue of floods, they're, what they what they do is they bring up something like endangerment from floods if it validates their religion. That is, if it shows that, oh, if you emit CO2, something bad is going to happen. Because if you actually cared about protecting people from floods, you could never say the solution is we're going to get everyone to stop using fossil fuels, otherwise you're screwed. Because that's not going to happen. Even if, even if you wanted it to happen, even if you could convince yeah. America, you would actually protect them from the damn flood. Of but, course. But, so, but you actually see, you're actually able to say, no, I care about people being protected from floods and I care about them being able to enjoy nature. And so you can have everything you think you're getting from the anti-human environmental movement, but you can have it with human beings actually being prosperous and being able the to- The only way it. to have it. It's the only way yeah, to have it. It's the only way to have it. There's no right. like, if everybody, you know, if everybody became a lot poorer, the effect on the natural environment would be disastrous. I mean, disastrous, right? Like- you know, I mean, you know, it's like, um, you know, I flew, I, I, one of my favorite countries right now is the Netherlands. I don't know if you've ever spent time there. I love it. You know, it just, I've ah. never been. Oh, you fly. Well, one morning I flew, we flew out of the airport like at dawn and you look down and it's like all these greenhouses are lit up. You know, it's got like this incredible, I mean, they're like German efficiency, but the Dutch are just, they're nicer as well. And anyway, they, you know, it's like you kind of go, that is like a rich country is reducing the footprint of its farming, which is our biggest foot, our biggest uh, environmental impact, right, is farming. So they're reducing their impact. Wealth and prosperity are what protect the environment. This, this idea that wealth and prosperity are, 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 the, are the drivers of environmental destruction is the most heinous lie. You know, there's another, as I document in the book, it's like, it's like when you're dependent on wood for fuel, you're competing with the mountain gorillas for habitat. You know, you're, you're basically taking their habitat and using it for energy. As you give them, if they have liquid petroleum gas, which is, you know, what they use in most, um, most poor and developing countries because they don't have the full natural gas hookups, um, they stop using wood. You know, forests grow back. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 that's the big lesson from it. I mean, you obviously understand this really well. I mean, you've written about the moral case for fossil fuels, absolutely moral case. In some ways, this is almost, I write the environmental case for fossil fuels, you know, in the first few chapters of this book. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, really enthusiastic about the book and I'm really enthusiastic about the reception. So I'm curious about the reception so far, including what has happened with your latest uh, article, but in particular, like, I, I want to know, like, what are the, what good, like sort of what good reception are you getting from like people who are having their minds opened? And then what kind of resistance are you getting from what I would call the anti-human environmental movement? I mean, it's amazing, actually. I've, I'm, I'm surprised at how positive it's been. Um, a lot of nice emails, you know, I've um, a lot of nice social media interactions. The book is selling. It's now going to be translated. So really um, rewarding and relieving because um, the worst thing would be to write and nobody reads it. Um, you know, I'm in the process of, of <laughs> before I was talking to you, I was very mad because both, two reporters in Australia are coming after me like hard in this really unethical way. 
they're both accusing me of all sorts of terrible nonsense. It's all bullshit. And, and they keep kind of trying not to interview me. You know, they keep finding ways not to actually interview me. Much easier to demonize someone you don't talk to. So I'm about to send the letter to their, to their editors, to their bosses saying, this is a complete violation of your own code of ethics. So again, who are the ones that are trying to uh, repress information and dismiss by de delegitimizing and doing character assassination? It's the environmental journalists, you know, and it's the apocalyptic scientists, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, so it's, it, that's, I mean, I guess I expected it, but it is kind of, it is alarming, you know, and I mean, I think the thing that gives me hope is that you mentioned these big institutions. I mean, I look at it and I go, not totally clear that World Health Organization and Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change should exist. I mean, here you have WHO was like ur ur urging against mask use. IPCC mostly seems like it's doing alarmist advocacy. Should they exist? Maybe, but they definitely need new leadership. And similarly, the news media, like the New York Times doesn't even pretend to be an objective source anymore. The Washington Post doesn't even pretend to be an objective information source. And so these institutions are losing their credibility and trust. And on the one hand, that's, that creates a really crazy political environment like the one we live in. On the other hand, it gives me some hope that once kind of people get their heads screwed on right and those institutions get new leaders, that we could start to see a, a greater moderation and a, a more tempered tone in terms of not just environmental issues, but all these things that we care about. I mean, God, who doesn't wanna see cops you know, be better at their jobs. I mean, you know, like who doesn't, right, want to protect the natural environment? I mean, these things that have become supposedly, you know, supposedly polarized, it's polarized by the radical left, which doesn't want solutions. It wants, you know, really wants chaos and destruction and nihilism, as I described at the end of this book. It's really quite, it's just, it's just kind of pure destruction. Um, so my hope is that the world order is starting to change, you know, um, and in fact, all this tumult, you know, Brexit and Trump, it's just a sign that we're reverting back to, to nationalism and, and that that will hopefully create better institutions that are more appropriate for solving some of these important problems. So my guess, by the way, is that you're underestimating still how Probably. influential the book will be and oh. what the backlash will oh, be. Oh, thank you. Oh, I hope I think, so. I think both, I mean, just anecdotally, people have been blowing up my inbox, even without, even people who didn't listen to last week's episode, they're just like, oh, Alex, you have to see this. Particularly the, the, the title of the latest article, you know, the, you know, on behalf of envir environmentalists. And there's a huge, there's such a need for this kind of thing. And I, you know, I mean, there needs so many of us. I mean, there's just, you need, you know, dozens and hundreds of people uh, making these points, but it's, I mean, it's, I think it'll be a New York Times bestseller and it'll, it's, you know, you're starting to get attention from all these networks and you have you all so these much. new audiences that are going to be uh, attracted to you that weren't as focused on the nuclear uh, yeah. issue um, by itself. Although I love the nuclear issue and I'm probably going to write a book on the nuclear issue uh, at, at, at some yeah. point, hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll sell. But um, I mean, what do you expect to happen with the I mean, you talk about the catastrophists and there's this religion, but there's the money and the power and that involves status. So, so many people's status as moral and scientific is being challenged by your work. What do you expect to happen with that and, and how do you expect to respond? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, in some ways it's like, you know, this 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 attack that's coming from the Guardian of Australia and the and the South Morning Herald or no, the Sydney Morning Herald. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just accusing me of nonsense um and character assassination. So, you know, in some ways I'm not surprised. It's disappointing. I'm kind of sorry I have to deal with it, but I've also decided I'm just not going to I'm not going to put up with it. I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit him back hard and, you know, I've got a platform and, and I'm not messing around. So um, I'm going to deal with it that way, you know, um, the way that you deal with hecklers. Um, uh, you know, I mean, because one, th- one of the characters in the book, who's just the, one of the most beautiful people I know, Roger Pelkey Jr., who you know is the expert on climate change and disasters. And he was just absolutely um, defamed and 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 just so badly treated and i feel guilty that i didn't do anything because i was such a wimp i was scared and so um i'm not gonna allow myself to be subject to people lying about me i'm gonna hit back hard i'm harder um um so that's the first thing but the second thing is yeah i mean like you know look i'm inter- i'm talking to a lot of conservatives or a lot of libertarians people on the right and I've been I've been enjoying it. I did I talked to a Christian broadcaster yesterday for like an hour. And he, we just want to talk about God. And I was like, all right, let's talk about God and religion. And you know, and I have to say it was a really sweet conversation. And so um I'm I got this advice like 15 years ago from a friend who was just like, pay attention to the people who are drawn to you and not just to the people who are angry at you. And I've tried to do that over the years, but in some ways I don't know that I've done a very good job. And so this time, you know, I would talk to everybody, you know, the Heartland guys and, and um, you know, um, just anybody that wants to talk to me, I'm gonna talk to them, you know, pretty much because I'm just eager to have the conversation and I've got some hope that, that it is gonna bring a little bit more sanity. You know, my view, by the way, as the liberal friend to conservatives on this issue is that when conservatives, kind of do two things, basically express their love of nature, which I know they love nature. They have these, you know, they, for, it's just obvious. There's a lot of conservation activities by conservatives, but also I think move away from kind of the outright climate denial where it's sort of like, it's all because of sunspots or, you know, cyclical warming, which I just don't think is very scientific, but I also think has been a kind of a distraction. Um, I think once those two things happen, then conservatives are gonna be in a position to challenge the radical left and I think that the moderate liberals in the Democratic Party coalition need that to occur. They need somebody to stand up to the radical left and just be like, you know, WTF, like this is not okay. And that there's, a, and, and I think that will ultimately then create a more moderate center and hopefully more of a consensus around the stuff that matters on energy and the environment. And maybe you'll run for governor again and win. I, I, was, a, I was a supporter of yours uh, last time. Very sweet, man. Oh I'll, my God! What I'll say is, um, had you to appeal to besides instead of Gavin. You're sweet, man. Yeah, I mean, what I'll say is that um, I am definitely committed to addressing the problems in California. Um, I don't know about running again, but um, I am upset, very upset, as I know you are, and um, you know, by this homelessness crisis, which is really a drug addiction crisis and a mental illness crisis and it needs to be solved. I consider it an absolute embarrassment, a moral ab- abomination. And so I'm happy to, to say that my next book is gonna be about San Francisco. The title I'm considering is Civilization Forever. Um, 
you know, and a defense of cities and a defense of being able to walk on the sidewalk and also solutions to what do we do with all the people with schizophrenia and severe bipolar and severe mental illness on the streets? There's no psychiatrist in America who thinks that the best way to treat schizophrenia is with methamphetamine and heroin. Yet that's what we're doing. That is what we're doing. We're subsidizing one person a day almost in San Francisco overdose from fentanyl or heroin last year. I mean, how are we doing that? You know, this is a city that prides itself on its compassion for the poor and people of color. 40% of the homeless are African-Americans, even though they're less than 10% of the population. Um, you know, San Francisco is the home of the humanistic psychology movement, uh, pioneering commitment to people with mental illness. And this is what we do. And I, it's, I, I don't understand it exactly, but I, I care really passionately about it. So anyway, so thank you for mentioning California. I do think um, um, somebody needs to challenge the, the radical left orthodoxy in the state, which is just destroying our best cities. I mean, I went to Skid Row in LA, like in early January and stayed the night there. And it was just, I, I mean, it's really unbelievable. You know, 10,000 people in tents and everybody's doing drugs and partying and, 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 and very ill. Um, and I do see these things related in the sense that this impulse to tear down civilization before you actually have new institutions to replace them with there was the radical left that was about that one that that wanted to get rid of the mental hospitals out of this idea that we would just treat people in the community somehow but they never set up the community treatment we just released everybody from the hospitals tear down the nuclear plants even though obviously renewables can't replace them and now what we're going to get rid of the police you know and then they go well, we're going to get rid of the police and then it's like well what are you going to replace them with oh well we'll replace them with something we'll tell you what why don't we get the stuff set up first <laughs> So I wanted to get at this thing, which is this, it's a radical left idea, which means it's not a liberal idea. It's an illiberal idea um, that really, we just need to tear it all down. Um, and I, I see that as the underlying impulse. It's very destructive and we have to talk back to it. Yeah, I totally, I totally see those uh, parallels. And in general, you know, one thing your book highlights that needs to be highlighted is whatever its problems, today's world is amazing. So the systems uh, that built today, like, Respect. You better be careful. Like you should have the fear should be about stopping what's working to keep us so prosperous and so rapidly uh, progressing. And with that in mind, I just was wondering how can listeners of this show help support your cause? And I would just say that I don't have the biggest listenership or viewership, but I have a lot of very influential people and some very wealthy people, many from energy who watch this or listen to this. And so yeah, tell them uh, what, what they should do and how they can advance this. Because I think it's in, in every humanist interest that this book and you become really big right now. And I really believe in the power of individuals. You're very sweet. I appreciate that, man. Um, well, so in Vermont Progress, we definitely would love donations. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, we don't accept funding from the energy industry, but certainly um, from individuals. And if people, you know, gosh, they could certainly buy the book. You know, and they should certainly, if they can buy the book in bulk and give it to employees. Um, I love the interaction. It's been so lonely in some ways over the last few years. Writing a book, as you know, is a very lonely. Yeah, I'm, work I'm working on one right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm ambivalent about writing another one. It's so lonely. Um, and so I'm just enjoying being able to talk to people about it. And it's just such a rewarding experience. So please invite me to, to come and talk and 
and buy the book, man, and um, and spread it around. I mean, I definitely felt like after that book came out, I was like, there was a part of me, I was so exhausted. It was like postpartum depression, you know? And it was like, it's not mine anymore. I mean, I'm gonna defend it and protect it, but there is a way in which it really, uh, this book, it, now it really does belong to the world, belongs to other people. You know, I'm gonna defend it, but, um, you know, I want other people to own it and, and, and spread it around. And, you know, like I said, I put all, I just, we put all the graphics up at environmentalprogress.org. My colleagues are crazy, what, amazing what they did. They did 150 graphs and charts based on everything in Apocalypse Never. So you can literally get the basic argument just by, by visually, you know, with very little text. So spread those around. You know, we make them easy so you can pull them off and just put them on Twitter, you know, or social media or share them. But those were all great things. And of course, they should keep supporting you because you've been such an important voice in talking about the morality here. I mean, what your book did is, is it really, op you know, I was going to, I, I was going to call chapter six, the moral case for fossil fuels, but, but you had already gotten there, man. So we called it, uh, I had two chapters on fossil fuels. One's on uh, sweatshops, ostensibly, and then the other one is on how we save the whales. But um, yeah, I think what you've been doing, Alex, is so important to talk about the moral purpose of it all because I do think that the kind of people that have been trying to debunk the myths on this stuff have been a little bit more narrow stem types you know it's always been a little bit like let me show you my math and I think you've yeah. been really committed to like let me show you how much our how much better our lives are and 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 just this the inspiration of flourishing which is a word that I think I used a couple times in the book and certainly got from you um, stole from you as well as uh, the unreliables part so they should keep supporting you too, is what I would say. Oh, so definitely support awesome. your work. So just one more thing. How do they, you said they could reach out to you for speaking and stuff is the best way you gave environmentalprogress.org. Is there any other way they should use? Yeah, my, you can email me. My email is michaelschellenberger at Gmail. I read, I read and respond to every email I get. So I would love to hear from people. Oh man. Okay. I make no such promise, but that's a good... That's a good. The replies are kind of short sometimes, but, okay. um, but I do respond. And, and I, like I said, I'm in a, I'm very much in a, I'm excited, even though I'm supposed to go write another book now, I'm excited about the interaction. So, so I'd love to have the engagement with people. Yeah. Uh, well, enjoy it and we'll keep championing it. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Mike. It's been great to have you. Thanks, Alex. Really right. great. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks again to Michael Schellenberger for being on the show today is a stripped down technological version of Power Hour because uh, my producer Kelso is on vacation and I didn't want to wait to get this interview up. So I am just sharing it with you without the usual intro and outro. Hope you don't mind that. Hope you really enjoyed the interview. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Uh, sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Dot com. Remember, Mike's website is environmentalprogress.org, and you can reach him by email at uh, michaelschellenberger at gmail.com. Also, if you want to support uh, my work in the research and development and marketing for my different projects, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerator. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I really enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with another important topic. And in a couple weeks, I'm going to have Bjorn Lomborg, author of False Alarm, on the show. Uh, but for now, remember, the book is Apocalypse Never. And I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. 
the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.